I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, English author Catherine May reflects on her love of winter, the cold weather, and just why it's so valuable. In Celtic culture, winter is seen as, is, it's kind of labelled as gestational, which I think is such a beautiful way to think about it. Like the year is pregnant, ready to come into life in the spring. But nobody would say that pregnancy is not a valuable state. I think we see it as incredibly important and really prized within human society. And later, where did all the magic go? And how do we rediscover the joy of being enchanted? I think we reach an age where that sense that the world has latent magic in it that's there waiting for us to discover becomes embarrassing, you know? (laughs) And it's not the business of the rational, busy world. And it's not the business of an adult. The healing power of winter and finding moments of enchantment in an anxious age. That's coming up on Life Examined. While most of us can't wait for some spring air, it's the cold season, the winter, that offers us a chance to retreat from life, a period to regroup and reflect. And as maybe you can hear in my voice, sometimes it results in an actual cold, too. As depressing as it may sometimes feel, wintering is something we all need, physically and psychologically. Plants and creatures of the natural world lay fallow and hibernate, while most of us retreat indoors, lay low and slow down. And amidst the trend to downplay hardships to be constantly upbeat and cheery, the dark days of winter can offer a place of stillness, and a time to embrace solace and sadness and our darker emotions. English writer Catherine May also calls winter a time for, quote, letting your spare time expand, getting enough sleep, resting, a radical act, but it is essential. Catherine May is the author of the book Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times, and she joins me now for the full hour. Well, Catherine May, welcome to the program. It's great to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. You know, I'm very lucky in that I get a chance to spend a lot of time in Southern California where there's not much of a winter, although this year that could be debated with all of the rain. But I'm speaking to you today from a snowy Colorado kind of atmospheric place just outside of the mountains. And it's 30 degrees and it's about to snow and will be 30 degrees for the next 10 days, it appears. And I I suppose I am someone who is sitting with the concept of wintering and the frustration of the cold, but also loving it, knowing the snow will arrive. And I wanted to start with just your ideas of wintering, uh, because I think this is the first time our listeners get to hear you talk about it, and we still are in winter. And so welcome us a little bit to that book, and uh, maybe what was behind some of the ideas that you were trying to get to? Sure. Well, I've been following your cold snap from afar because Mm. it it seems really fascinating and extreme. Um, So wintering is the idea that all of us have periods in our life that are downtimes, that are are times when we feel forcibly cut off from the outside world. Um, And it might come from like a personal crisis, um, a divorce, uh, the loss of a job, a mental or physical illness, um, a bereavement, something like that. I mean, God, God forbid, a pandemic. Mm. Um, but it also might come from just a change that's trying to happen in our lives. And, and it takes us down for a while. And I think probably every one of us has had that experience of watching the outside world carry on as normal and feeling like we're uniquely cut off from it, that everybody else is fine and we have fallen through the cracks. And that often comes with this huge sense of failure because it isn't spoken about very much. Like it's it's invisible and so we're invisible and we're left to deal with it on our own. And I just, I really wanted to write about those times, but I also have a a love of winter. It's my favorite season. Uh, I quite like autumn too, but anything too warm and I lose interest. And I wanted to talk about the beauty that I perceive in that time of year and how beauty and hardness can come together, that it doesn't have to be easy to be beautiful and that there's so many depths of understanding we can find in studying the the wintering world, you know, the natural world of plants and animals and how they survive the winter. Mm. You know, it's interesting, one of of the most interesting periods of my life was working as a grief counselor. And the way you described what wintering is, this idea 
of the world going on as normal, but you yourself have changed or something feels dislocated. That to me is such an experience of grief in what I've noticed yeah. in myself or in the clients I worked with. And so I, I, I'm just kind of fascinated by this idea of how these psychological states can mirror also a, a season, one in which we've been through, you know, in countless years of our lives. Yeah, that makes so much sense to me. I think the first time that you experience the loss of someone that that you love, it's an instant change. Like you're you're suddenly inducted into this world that was previously invisible to you. And even mm. if you've watched it from the outside and you know about it, um, it, it you can't possibly be ready for it. Mm-hmm. And you know, for loads of us, actually, we haven't watched it from the outside, it's been hidden from us. And so it comes as a terrible shock. And and of course, I think the the thing to talk about, too, is that people aren't always very sympathetic towards us in our grief, or in our despair, or in our sickness, you know, they, they lose interest, or they don't know what to say to us, they don't know how to deal with it. And they they might not be able to accept it themselves. Um, And it but you know it is a very particular psychological encounter uh, it's it's almost a space like i always think about it as a as a room you know a, a sort of big empty white space where we feel so exposed and so vulnerable and so alone mm. um and what fascinates me is how different kind of winters can talk to each other they're they're very similar experiences and there's a commonality there that's hidden because we, you know, it's a time when we tend to be alone. Mm. You talk about a very moving moment in the book, Wintering, where your son was going through an incredibly difficult period in his life and you had to make a hard mm. decision. And I, I, I want you to talk about that because it seems to get to some of the things we're talking about right now. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that? Yeah, certainly. So, um, Essentially, I mean, my son, when he was six, just reached a point where he could no longer go to school. It was so distressing for him. And we were, as parents, we were desperate. It's so awful to see your child so upset. And we sought advice everywhere we could. And the only answer we kept getting was, you just have to force him in. Don't worry about it. They stop crying eventually. Mm. Or, you know... Like if if you take them into school enough, they'll accept that that's the rule and they'll give in. And I I couldn't accept that. You know, I I felt like that was such a brutal thing to do to a child that was telling you that they were distressed. And in the time that I spent trying to help him get into school, trust was breaking down between us. Mm. And I got to the point where I couldn't do it any longer and I couldn't be part of this brutal system that said that his feelings didn't matter. And so we pulled him out of school, which was not something I'd ever wanted or planned to do. Um, And I was, you know, I was scared as well. Like I was scared that it wasn't the right thing for him. Um, I was scared about what it was going to do to me. Like I just, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. I'd just come out of a period of him not being in school because he he was too young. You know, I, mm-hmm. I didn't want to go back there. I'd found it really hard. But between us, we had to figure it out because I couldn't keep forcing him to do that. And I, I wanted to show him that his feelings mattered and to give him permission in the future to meet his own needs when they arose and not to traumatize himself, forcing himself through it. Mm. There's something in that story to me which is so important, which is that sometimes there needs to be just an acceptance of hardships or of difficulty Mm. in a way that is not masked. I mean, I think even in psychology, we're always talking about positive reframes like, yeah, but you'll be stronger if you keep at it or if you'll, oh, there's, yeah. there's a bright side to this. <laughs> and and I, I think that what, why, what I understand about what you were talking in that book was you were taking your son out to say like, you're going through a hard time and that's okay. Let's just be in that hard time together right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to say, actually, as your mother, it's my job to be in that hard time with you like that's the Mm. the greatest thing that I can offer you is not to shut down that hard time or to deny it or to undermine it or belittle it but to actually live that with you 
alongside you and to fully honor it as a, a valid state of being. And it's, I, I've struggled to find too many echoes of that. Like we're beginning to understand that we need to do that for adults, but we're still visiting on children the message that their feelings aren't real, you know, that they're not fully formed yet, that you can't trust them. And it's it's a, it's something I've never regretted. It wasn't easy. Um, and it had you know, huge financial consequences for us, um, as you can imagine. Um, but I felt the trust between us rebuild during that time. And now as he's a little older and he's back in school, which everybody told me I'd never get him back into school if I did that. And you know, I was making a run for my own back, all those wonderful phrases. Um, now I see in him this amazing ability for compassion towards other children who are suffering and this ability to be with people when they are also struggling and I'm so so glad that we gave him that we gave him the opportunity to develop that hmm. I know you really believe in in just the kind of wisdom that there are cyclical patterns in life or that that's maybe that's all there is there's cyclical patterns of life that things come and keep things go and you know even in my training as a therapist I mean we are taught to acknowledge that when people are in deep distress if you can just keep keep them moving a bit 10 mm. things will clear after time you know especially in yeah. acute cases of suicidality I mean there's this thought that like this will pass at a certain point I mean you know not mm. always for people but I think that's maybe something you're getting to as well when we begin to think of what a season is or, you know, what a mental state is or what a very dark period of emotionality is. Do, do I have yeah. that right? Yeah, you absolutely do. And, and the insight comes from suicidality as well, because mm. um, for most of my teens, I lived with a strong urge to, to finish my life. That, that was something that was very, very normal for me. Um, and it reached this kind of peak when I was 17, when I had what I love to term a breakdown, which I know isn't a, a scientific term, but it's like a meaningful term, I think, in, in our folk culture where everything stopped for me for a while. And I had to face my, you know, this this suicidal habit of thinking, actually, which is how I came to understand it. And yeah i realized that the point when i turned the corner was when i realized how long i'd lived with those feelings without acting on them and i realized the value of that moment and the next moment and getting through 10 minutes um rather than making any big plans you know and predictions for how i was going to survive 10 years um and once i had that insight i kind of realized that i had a an instinct for survival altogether you know that there must be a part of me that wanted to survive because I had survived and that just building that moment upon that moment and going and making a cup of tea when things got hard um, making those tiny movements and gestures towards the next phase that was very close by uh, were absolutely what I followed for a very long time. Hmm. Yeah, there, there is something kind of mysterious in us. It's some, some much deeper animal sense of that we will continue to keep going. I, I, I just remember I had a mm. teacher once, a well-known therapist, who was going through a really difficult, kind of dreadful period of her life, a divorce, and was driving down the street and was like, what am I doing? But at the same time noticed that her eyes were checking the rearview mirrors to keep her safe on the road. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. And I just yeah, thought that's, that's so, so interesting. interesting. I remember Gary Snyder, the, the poet, once telling me that, you know, even when you're not aware of it, your body continues to breathe. There's just these natural functions in us to keep us keep us going. And I, I love thinking about that sometimes. Yeah, it's it's really affirming. And I I don't think that that people who don't experience those thoughts and who've never been to that incredibly dark and self-destructive place. I don't think they ever realize how much of survival is based on small moments of determination hmm. and distraction, honestly, just distracting myself for 10 minutes. Um, yeah, life is, is knitted together of those moments sometimes. And, and there are times when we become really conscious yeah. of how 
long 10 minutes can feel. And then other times when it, it eases off and life feels simple again. Mm-hmm. And they do come. Yes. Well, one thing I'm, I love about the book Wintering is how you talk about not just yourself, but that this idea of going into some kind of hibernation is not just a human thing, but one that plants and animals do. And I wonder if you could pick a few examples that, that fascinated you when you were researching and, and learning about this book. Oh, yeah, I got really into hibernation. (laughs) (laughs) Because actually, there's, uh, you know, hibernation is just one of the many behaviours that we see in the animal kingdom that are about conserving energy over the winter. Hmm. Um, And I got to meet uh, one of the true hibernators, which is the dormouse, which I did not realise that Americans don't have. Like, I, how do you guys get by without dormice? They're so cute. (laughs) I don't even know if I've heard but of I, them. So anyway, continue. Mm, Clearly, I'm missing something Alice. big in my life. <laughs> it's so. there, there's one in Alice in Wonderland, which I think is okay. like the major American touch point with a dormouse. <laughs> <laughs> but they are, they're like a, they're, I mean, they're a little bit like a, a hamster with a long tail. Yeah. And they're kind of sandy coloured. Um, and I got to meet one at my local animal conservation centre. And uh, they they unpacked one, a hibernating one for me, which is something they do regularly to make sure that they're still okay because they take in vulnerable dormice. I mean, I can't imagine anything much more vulnerable than a dormouse anyway, but they take in ones that might not survive the winter and monitor their hibernation because they're becoming endangered. And I got to hold this, this hibernating dormouse and it, it completely changed my perception of what hibernation was because... I'd always managed imagined it as like a um, as a cozy experience, you know, snuggling down in a lovely little nest and being all warm and lovely. And hibernation is actually a very raw act of survival. And when you touch that dormouse, it's so cold. It's just it, it's four degrees centigrade above freezing, so it's ice cold to the touch. And yet at the same time, it doesn't feel dead. And that's, there's a, a kind of, I don't know, there's something that does to your brain. Like it, it doesn't make any sense when you touch that, that that ice cold thing and it's still fleshly. And they have to put on so much weight in the months running up to, I mean, their, their whole waking life is is dictated by having to put on as much fat as they can in order to survive the very long winter and so they're squishy. They're like deeply, deeply squishy and they're round like a little ball. And you can, can gently poke your finger into them and leave fingerprints in them. They're so they're so kind of made up of this fluid fat. And that, I mean, it was I will never forget that experience. Mm-hmm. And about every six months I repost my video of the dormouse onto Instagram because I just can't resist it. Like it's like, guys, guys, did I ever tell you I held a dormouse? You know? <laughs> and <laughs> But like, what does that tell us? You know, we know that humans don't hibernate in that sense, but it does tell us that hibernation is about fighting the brutality of a hard winter rather than making ourselves soft and comfortable. Mm. And that to me is such a inspiring thing. It's much more inspiring than any kind of like urge to make the best of things. It's like, no, what what amazes me about creatures, and, and we're a creature too, is that we can sometimes hunker down when the world is giving us so little and still get through it and get through it to the next summer. Hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and what stays with me about that story, among a lot of things, is just how cold the mouse was. I mean, like on the so verge cold. of death almost. I mean, that yeah. I couldn't, we couldn't live with that kind of a body temperature. It's, it had found a way to be just I, almost at this liminal place where yeah. it is using such little energy through its reserves to just kind of keep the heart beating at that point. And I find that to yeah. be a very kind of moving image. And even then the heart is only just beating. Uh. You know, it's so slow they're barely breathing, um, their kidneys aren't functioning. And what happens is that they naturally stir about every six weeks during the hibernation and just rise up to consciousness enough for their kidneys to flush again and for all of those kind of basic bodily processes to happen 
and then they drop deep deep into into this stasis again mm. and it yeah it, i i would love to know what dormouse consciousness is like during that state it, i i wonder right. what it's like it feels yeah. it feels almost dreamlike maybe in a sense i mean that's mm. what i would project on it that that you're in some some weird conscious unconscious space. I mean, I, who knows what it's like to be a dormouse, right? Yeah. But this is where no, my yeah, actually, this I mean, is that's where a big question in the this, first place, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but that's where my mind goes, at least. So yeah, the yeah. ontology of a dormouse. But yeah, yeah, it's 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 as close to death as I think any of us can imagine. Yeah, and yet it tells us everything about life. Like mm. everything is there. It's, absolutely wonderful and and i i take it that it's not just animals but but the plant kingdom has interesting stories of wintering as well yeah absolutely i mean plants i mean we we know this right because we see the leaves drop off trees in the winter so we're, we're all really clear that something happens but what i didn't realize until i started like researching the detail of what was happening when i was you know writing wintering is that um, that when trees drop their leaves, they've already formed the buds that are ready for next spring. So the tree is, is looking after itself. It's, it's again, getting itself down to the minimal use of energy it can possibly do, mm. but it's absolutely ready to spring into action. And it's in no way dead, it's just poised. <laughs> mm. And while it's doing that, it's doing such important work in the forest because the, you know, trees are what hold the soil together over winter when the, you know, when the soil becomes very wet and there's rains which can really erode the soil. We rely on the, the structure made by trees mm. to, to hold the whole forest together. And, you know, they're hosting hibernating insects and squirrels and all, all kinds of creatures. So even in their, in this state when they look so bare and like there's no life in them, trees are doing extraordinary work in the forest and i like there's a there's a parallel for us there as well that you know when we're in stasis we're an important part of the human community still i think Mm. and it just occurs to me and this might be a a very obvious thought but just you know where i'm sitting now in in this kind of freezing snowy weather at the moment like (laughs) i i am not really out making a lot of new social connections right now. It doesn't, I almost mm. don't feel like that energy is in me at the moment to go yeah. and, and, you know, be out in the neighborhood or be out with thousands of people. Maybe I should, but there, but there really is this sense that like I am hunkering down quietly using minimal energy, fixing things around a house, reading, writing. I mean, it just, it, it's, mm. it's not even a conscious thought. It's just the way that I am right now. It's where my energy is which all seems yeah. to be quite paralleled to the, you know, the natural world around me. Yeah, and it seems to me that we've forgotten about the important work that happens in the darker months, you know, mm. that those months are about restoration, they're about repair, they're about reflection, loads of R's apparently. Um, <laughs> they're, yeah. they're about that kind of work that needs to be done underneath the visible surface of life. And when we don't do it, things fall apart really quickly. You know, our, our houses fall into disrepair or we don't learn the lessons that we need to learn because we've not made the time and space to to think about what's happened. And yet, we, you know, we don't talk about that. We talk about creativity and teamwork. And these are all like the mm. important values that we, you know, that we want people to do, being sociable, being, um, being active. Uh, but I don't even think that, um, we're not connected during those times. Like I, I think that maintenance work that we do is part of our connection. It, it's just this different aspect of it to the to the very big, loud, sociable time. Yeah. And there's a um, in Celtic culture, winter is seen as is it's kind of labelled as gestational, which I think is such a beautiful way to think about it. Like the year is pregnant, ready to come into life in the spring mm. but nobody would say that pregnancy is not a valuable state like, you know, mm. I, think, I think we see it as incredibly important and and sort of really prized within human society mm. and that's that's what you know we can be pregnant in different ways too and the year can be pregnant yeah 
And, and this is always what made living in Southern California a bit strange to someone who grew up on the East Coast <laughs> in Colorado was that, you know, winter would come, but not certainly with the kind of snow and feeling of desolation and lack of light that it does in so many other parts of the Northern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. And there are micro changes in the season. This year has been a particularly rainy year. And so I'm, I'm going to say it was winter this year. Okay, I'll, I'll handle yeah. it. I will it admit. sounds like you guys yeah. have, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. How, how does, how do you feel that that does impact someone? I mean, there's, of course, equatorial cultures as well that, that don't mm. experience what, necessarily what I'm talking about. But you know what I'm saying? What, what yeah. do you think that does to the psyche after a while when days just kind of feel the same year round? Yeah, I mean, I, I quite, if I can meet, uh, you know, if I ever come across an equatorial native, yeah. I will always ask them about that because I'm quite fascinated because actually I've, I find it very hard to imagine life without seasons. I, I'm quite reliant on them to give me rhythm throughout my year. Um, and But people have told me that actually if you live in an equatorial country, there are ways of marking the transition through the year anyway that don't that aren't so dependent on the weather um you know and i mean the christian calendar is a good example of that that's been Mm. adopted in in a lot of those societies where um that you know people are still following like a a progress through the year and different movements through it um but people also talk to talk about how tired they get of endless summer Mm. and that there's this sense of of real weariness and and kind of bur- like literal burnout that comes. Um, and I, I remember a Singaporean woman telling me that, um, you know, it's so common for people to leave that very hot zone at some point during the year for some relief for it. And I, you know, I, I obviously those people are much more used to it than than we might be. But there is a sense that we need variation across the year, and we need some kind of structure that gives us permission to retreat a bit. And to, uh, you know, to not be up, not be high all the time, um, to to fall quiet for a while. Yeah. But yeah, I it's something that I'm always exploring when I get the chance because it's not something I fully understand. I, I've definitely got like a northern climate temperament. Yes, yes, <laughs> of course. And to me, I think it, it brings up a really interesting question of the power of of contrast. In life, mm. I, I, you know, mm. I remember speaking to a, a, a psychologist who ma- said it could be that a, a lot of our sense of happiness comes out of contrast. That there has to be one thing to compare to the other. When something mm. feels uniform, it's hard to get any sense of emotional differentiation. I mean, think about great art or photography. What is it? It's it's transition of light. It's contrast of images. And I, th- there's something to me that is very powerful in that knowing that something is going to change and therefore we have a place to go to and arrive to does that make sense yeah it does and i and i think that talks to me about emotional states as well Mm -hmm. um that you know we we have this aim to be happy and i'm not sure that's really meaningful on its own you know like I, i i actually feel like we should aim for happiness to be one of the spectrum of emotions we feel right um and i and I actually think that we can value the darker emotions as much as happiness if we're allowed to feel all of them. And, and actually periods of sadness can be can be really helpful and, and satisfying in a way that isn't jolly or necessarily like very presentable to the outside world, but it is a, a purity. You know, there's, a, there's this purity to the emotion that I think feels sometimes right for us. We need to feel it. Mm. And yet we don't allow ourselves those darker ones. We don't feel comfortable with them. And we've convinced ourselves they're not safe. Yes. But there's nothing unsafe about being sad. Mm. And in fact, it's what's unsafe is to keep pushing it away. Well, one thing that California shares as well as the UK is a beautiful coastline. And I know which means a lot to you as well. And I, I just want to spend a minute a minute saying that I, I'm, I'm one of my great joys is being in cold water and in oceans. Oh, and that's something that you write about as well. And your love of or the experiences you shared getting in freezing cold seas up there. And maybe talk about how that ties in maybe to what we're talking about here a little bit. 
Yeah, there's a real contrast. I have this great yearning to explore the California coast one day, which ah. I, I really hope is going to come true in the next few years, because um, I love more than anything a craggy, crashing coastline. Uh -huh. That's my favourite thing in the we world. We have plenty of it, so yes, <laughs> come on up. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I've, I've always been very drawn to getting into the sea. Um, and, you know, that for me is it's not just about the act of swimming, like it's not about exercise or something, you know, something as kind of flat as that. It's about entering this very different space and the mm. way that being in the sea alters your consciousness as soon as you're there. You, you enter into this very different kind of sensory landscape. The sound is different, you know, your skin is touching water all over um, and, there's a sense of sort of spaciousness that I find in the sea, but also this contact with enormous energy and feeling mm. small compared to it. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. I, I find myself very disinterested in kind of beautiful flat Mediterranean seas. They're too warm. <laughs> they, there's not enough drama. Mm. Um, what I love is, is the wildness of the sea and the way that, you know, I, I live a five minute walk from from the sea. And so I get to see it most days. And the way it has different moods that are just constantly shifting over it. And sometimes you can watch them change, you know, before your eyes. The sea offers you a different thing every day and, and you bring yourself to it. And and therefore you see a reflection of, of where you are on that day. I, yeah, I didn't always live by the sea, but I'm, I don't think I'd ever live away from it now. And if you're just joining us, my guest is Catherine May. She's the author of Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. And coming up next in just a moment, we'll discuss her latest book, which is called Enchantment, Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age. This is Life Examined on KCRW. Stay close. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard British author Catherine May share her thoughts on wintering and why embracing the cold in the harshest months of the year can be not just rejuvenating, but also healing. May's love of the sea, its wildness and shifting moods, has become a source of healing as well as one of joy and magic. Plunging into the cold English waters is also one of the many instances that inspired Catherine May to write her second book, Enchantment, Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age. Let's dive back into the conversation. I think this takes us to the latest book. It, it just feels that somehow these books are connected in a way that I'm going to let you describe, mm -hmm. but, but tell me how you see moving from wintering to this latest project, Enchantment. Yeah, I mean, I'd say they're directly sequential in lots of ways. And I mean, I think I spent a lot of time asking myself, like, what is the book I need to write after wintering? Mm. Um, and in lots of ways, that, that felt like pressure. You know, yes. <laughs> people, yeah. it had been so warmly received. And, I, you know, I heard so much from people about how they'd, how it completely changed the way they thought about, you know, this season that they lived through every year. And I, and you know, there was a big part of me that thought, well, how do I follow this? But then also that question was really exciting because, like, what follows wintering? Like, what do we need next? What what is the what is the phase after that? And the answer became really clear to me <laughs> as I tried to emerge from the pandemic because that was a, a grand winter that for me was, you know, was better than for many other people. Like I, I was actually quite comfortable in the space a lot of the time. But, at the, you know, at the same time as as the, the months wore on, I realised that I was losing a lot too. And that despite my love of solitude, even I'd had too much solitude. Um, and I, yeah, I felt very burnt out by it and very foggy, like clouded over. I couldn't access my own thoughts. Um, and I, you know, I couldn't even get a handle on time anymore after a few months. And yet, when I, when the world started to open up again, 
I didn't want to go back to normal and I couldn't go back to normal because everything had changed. And so that that was the that's the transition, I think, between the two books. It's like, well, what next? How do we go back in mm. and what do we and how do we make it good? Like, how do we make it beautiful and, and meaningful again? But that feeling of enchantment, I know it's something that you or, or not just you, but we tend to think about as almost a childlike emotion, right? Like something we had access to at younger ages. And I I hate to think we grow out of it, but maybe we do. Yeah, well, I I think it's something we very deliberately grow out of, actually. Mm. You know, I, I think we reach an age where that sense that the world has latent magic in it that's there waiting for us to discover, it becomes embarrassing, you know, <laughs> and it, it's not the business of the rational, busy world, and it's not the business of an adult. And yet, there also comes a point when we begin to miss that, and and that's when we struggle to get it back again. You know, we walk so far away from it, we lose our skill for feeling that intense engagement with things that we find beautiful and utterly fascinating um and yeah that's that was the territory i wanted to go into which is quite challenging territory for me uh because it feels like it could be too soft almost you know (laughs) after writing about the hard winter what do i have to say about this this real yearning that i had for or you know for wonder for like for magic magic not in the kind of magic trick sense but in the sense that not everything is explicable to me and that it's bristling with this energy that that is just beautiful and mysterious at the same time and how do i enter into a spiritual life that i have never had and don't know how to have. So yeah, all of those questions came into the book as I sat down to write. Quite intimidating questions, actually. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) And I'm wondering where the investigations began to take you. I mean, both in the way that these that you studied dormice and hibernating creatures but but certainly i i know that one thing you do so well is talk about the internal and external and i i'm kind of curious where where you thought you had to explore as you launched Mm. into this project well and i I think what i'd say about that is that the book's about uniting those two Mm. like joining rejoining mind and body and and kind of finding a way to write about things that don't have language and that that can't and shouldn't have language um and and so getting into contact with that that really embodied state of being rather than the state of being that exists just just in my head which is you know only a small part of me um and you know i had to begin with very simply learning to move again after getting stuck behind my desk and kind of clinging to it for a whole pandemic and you know losing all my habits of movement and of exploration and of variation um and learning to feel curiosity again and and so like right at the beginning of the book i literally just take myself out to walk and i don't know where i'm going but i know that i've got to move myself again in order to get my the cogs of my brain (laughs) moving um but then after that, I, I began to think about where I wanted to visit. Like, where did I want to go <clears throat> to follow my own fascination? Like, where was that tingle of curiosity? And, it, it, the, you know, the question is further back than just, oh, I, I'll work out what I want to see and go and see it. Because I'd lost touch with that very sense of curiosity and, and with that desire and that pull of of the outside world so yeah i was starting from a very low base Mm, mm. i know you live for example in a really beautiful part of england and it's near canterbury where there's some really amazingly spiritual sites i know some of them were on your list as well but i'd love for you to talk about that or just the places that that you were looking for some magic which is a word you do use in the book quite a bit 
Yeah, I'm reappropriating the word magic yes. for sure. Um, I love it actually. I, I kept uh, my editor kept saying, "Not so much magic, please." You know, <laughs> uh-huh. oh, take it. Yeah, a little less of that. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> no more abracadabra. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so I do. I live about um, eight miles outside of Canterbury, um, which is as well as being the you know the site of uh, what likes to call itself the number one cathedral, which always makes me laugh on Twitter. Uh-huh. Um, it's also it's part of an ancient pilgrim route that actually can be mapped back to the Stone Age that ran right across the bottom of the country and then across to to Europe. And so it's part of this flow of connection across the world that has existed through time immemorial. And I, I went to, as part of the research for the book, I went to visit this ancient Uh, sort of healing well that sits just on the outside of Canterbury and which we know has had long Christian associations um, but which probably was a healing well before then as well and uh, in its current state it's uh, it's surrounded by this this very beautiful old worn stone surround uh, with the crest of the Black Prince on it. So it, that, that seems to date it to the 14th century, or at least some of it. Um, and there's a mythology around that too. And it's it has this uh, these steps down to this still pool of water. And so to visit the well, you have to go down towards it and enter into this different space. Like it's it's so cleverly set up. Our ancestors understood something that we rarely understand now, which is that we need to make a transition into that state of prayerfulness or that state of openness and wondering and inquiry. And it it, it was so striking to me the first time I went down there that you could see the evidence of generations taking you know troubled minds down there because this was a well that you went to if you had leprosy or if you had other diseases and you asked it for healing and it was hard not to feel that sense of connection with other unquiet minds as I stepped down those steps and and saw my own reflection in the pool and I in fact I you know I was there yesterday because uh the launch of a book is a is a wonderful time but also a very unsettling time yes and uh and I the only the best thing I could think of to do was to go and visit that well one of our early guests on the program was a wonderful travel writer well more than that Timothy Egan who wrote a book called Pilgrimage and it Mm. I believe it starts there and he talks a lot about that and I think gets to something that seems to be, I don't want to say necessarily lost, but might have been a bigger part of earlier cultures, earlier Christian or going back to early Greek cultures, which was this acknowledgement of having to move somewhere to engage in pilgrimage, mm. to make a symbolic gesture towards something else. Um, there were yeah. f- famous temples, the, the, the mysteries of Eleusis, where people would go and there, there, I mean, there was thought that they would take a spiked barley and enter these psychedelic states. I mean, but there were so many examples of <laughs> yeah. this. And yeah. I think that you're tapping into something that feels a little bit more immemorial, something that is um, of a different era, but certainly still part of, I think, who we are. Yeah. I mean, pilgrimage is a process. That's what's, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's a it's a long process and it's a commitment. Um, and it's a commitment to enter into a, di- a different state of mind, whether or not you take psychedelic wheat. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, you know, it's a and, and, and it involves quite often um, self-denial or suffering, mm. um, which, you know, is a very complex thing to, to engage in. But you're looking for a change in consciousness and you're looking to enter into different society altogether and, and into a sort of liminality, I think, when you when you go on a pilgrimage. I'd love to hear some other examples, though, of where you began to find a sense of, of wonder or curiosity or awe, uh, not just in some of the grand sites, but I, I take it you, you explored other things, maybe things that felt more mundane, but could also be filled with some of those descriptors that I just used. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think the pandemic ended up doing me a favour in this sense, because when I started thinking about the book, I thought, oh, I'm going to have to go and visit mountains and grand landscapes and go and find these sites that have to give me awe. And actually, I, I couldn't do that. Like they, those were forbidden from me because of because we were still in lockdown and we were still living under loads of restrictions. And I it. I suddenly realised that, that that's the point, that actually that's the lesson I needed to learn, that wonder didn't just exist elsewhere, um, that I needed to go looking for it closer to home and, I, and that I could find it. And so the book's made up of quite a lot of small moments, actually, of, you know, going out and spending time with the moon um, and feeling that communion with this object that's in the sky right above our heads every night but which we rarely stop to think about what that means that you know we are looking into outer space and sitting under the reflected light of this of the sun which is extraordinary and I spent some time writing on the beach as well and and thinking really what that what the tides actually meant you know as they as they traveled around the world in a continuous loop and how connected that made me and how small I felt amid those things. Mm. But I, I also, I did go on some, some constrained missions eventually. Um, and, and like one of the most memorable ones for me was uh, traveling up to Yorkshire to try and see my own Brocken Spectre, which mm. uh, which is something I'd always wanted to do. Would you like me to explain? I, yes, yeah, I'm afraid I, <laughs> I, I don't follow exactly. So please, that's fine. Um, so a Brocken Spectre is this meteorological phenomenon um, by which, if you're, oh, how do I explain this? If you're at the top of a mountain in the morning with the sun low behind you and there's cloud cover underneath you. So the way that, you know, it fills a valley in the morning, what you'll see is uh, a projection of your shadow across the cloud. But because you don't have a reference for the scale of it, it looks like a giant. And it might seem disconnected to you because the cloud might be floating away from you. So it doesn't feel like your shadow. It, it, it feels like something separate. But what's particularly fascinating about a Brocken Spectre because of the quality of light and the amount of water saturated in the air is that it appears with a halo around its head, a corona, a kind of rainbow halo. Um, and, you know, there's there's been accounts of these for a long time. You know, there's kind of Buddhists in uh, monasteries at the top of mountains in Nepal who, who report seeing them. Um, and there's, you know, they're recorded throughout literature and Jung writes about them and, and all kinds of people have written about them. And I've always wanted to see one like they're this this obsession of mine that's run through many, many years <laughs> and I've never been able to. Um, so I went to a, a place that was uh, famous for producing rock inspectors to try and find one. Mm. And uh, without giving loads away, um, I learned that it's the the mission that's the the important thing and you know yes. <laughs> whether or not you see the mm. fascinating fascinating thing <laughs> oh that's incredible reminds me of i don't know how many sailors or people by the ocean looking for the green flash of light that is supposed yes. to appear before, just is as that the sun Elmo's goes down fire I, well, I, you know i i don't know the reference exactly but but i know that i've never seen it but it has forced yeah. me to look out over a sinking sun in the ocean a hundred times and i've never mm maybe regretted what it took me to get to that moment. Do you know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah, yeah, I do. I yeah. do. And I and it and actually the what you get from it, whatever you come to see, is an intense engagement and a deep quality of attention that doesn't get replicated by accident. Yes. Um and and, and whatever you bring that quality of attention to, it will show you something, even if it's not Instagrammable. Yeah. As we begin to wrap up our conversation, I, I, I'd love for you to just pick something from the book, maybe a moment or some thoughts you had that uh, speak to some of the things that we're talking about. Yeah, I'd love to read a section about the moon, I think. Mm. Danger, when it's always imminent, does harm. It doesn't need to actually arrive. You exhaust yourself in the act of forever looking over your shoulder. Your body readies itself to fight and never quite discharges the chemical cocktail. 
you channel it instead into anger and self-pity and anxiety and hopelessness. You divert it into work. But what you really do with every fibre of your being is watch. You are incessantly, exhaustingly alert. You don't dare ever let up just in case the danger takes advantage of your inattention. I've forgotten what it feels like to have space in my brain for anything other than watching. For a long time I kept working and for a while that felt like a life raft, but then incrementally it became impossible. I was aware of a fog descending, a seizing of the gears, but it seemed diffuse until now. One night I press the button on my electric toothbrush and find it only has the lowest burr of its battery left. The engine inside can barely shift the bristles. I see it clearly for the first time. This is me. I'm out of charge. I've been leaking out energy for too long and I don't know how to get it back again. Mm. Waking in the middle of the night, I remember something that I used to do. I pad downstairs to greet the moon and then sit in a garden chair and kick off my slippers. I let my bare feet make contact with the cold patio tiles and I feel the tingle of exchange between the earth and me, the instant reciprocity. I close my eyes and let my mind sink downwards. I relieve myself of the duty to search for language. I let myself feel instead. I sit there embodied, immersed in the relief of it. As the moon keeps watch, I wonder how I could possibly have forgotten this. It's been such a pleasure to spend this hour with Catherine May, our guest. She's the author of the new book, Enchantment, Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age. Catherine, thank you so much just for your thoughtfulness and vulnerability and ideas today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's been such a lovely conversation. That's it for this week. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can stay connected to us on Facebook. There's a link to that at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. And when you're there, you can check out our full archives. You can connect with me directly on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastion, where you can find weekly videos and a whole lot of other ways to stay connected to the show throughout the week. Thanks again for joining us. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you soon.